Hey everybody, thanks for checking out Bleach Mouth Postscript. My name is Larry. On this podcast, I generally have a guest each episode that come armed with five pieces of music. It can be a song, it can be an LP, it can be an EP, it doesn't matter as long as we're talking about music. It just serves as a jumping off point for a much wider conversation. However, today is not one of those episodes. Um, I've posted a couple uh, one-off episodes over the past uh, couple weeks, uh, two Halloween uh, associated episodes, and I wanted to do another five and change. I uh, give you some extra content as I edit uh, the interviews that I've I've got on my docket for this five and change minisode, if you want to call it a minisode. I wanted to talk about something that, um, frankly, gets a lot of lip service. A lot of people talk about it. It's pretty ubiquitous in hardcore punk culture. And one might ask why I would even want to discuss it. Uh, it stems from a conversation I had with uh, my buddy Rich Miles and um, some of the prevailing trends in hardcore punk culture from its inception through uh, current times. I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, New York hardcore. Uh, like I said, it's pretty ubiquitous, and I think it's the prevailing and dominant strain of hardcore and punk uh, for quite some time, beginning into the uh, mid-80s onward. Uh, You know, a lot of New York hardcore bands were late to the game. Um, The biggest heyday that, in in my experience, was the mid to late 80s, right around the crossover era, where a lot of hardcore metal bands were... Um, playing in the same sandbox. Um, I, I don't know, really know how else to put this except for to say that the impact New York hardcore has had on hardcore and punk overall is severe. New York hardcore as a regional scene has changed the direction of uh, the hardcore punk culture overall. It's changed it politically. It's changed it style-wise as far as uh, imagery, aesthetic. It's changed uh, the way the bands sound and uh, has had a gr- bigger impact um, in uh, pop cu- popular culture uh, worldwide as compared to, say, other scenes. So, therefore, it's become the predominant... Uh, it's become the... Th- when you mention hardcore to somebody who only marginally knows anything about hardcore, they're probably going to think about New York hardcore. And when those people think about New York hardcore, they probably look at the, at least in the 80s, the late 80s, the regressive politics, uh, the violence that was endemic to the scene at the time. Um, They think about those things because, one, uh, a lot of it was true. There was a lot of stuff that was going on that was, you know, uh, by my estimation, not very cool, but also because they misunderstood it. When I mention the violence and regressive politics, I am painting with broad strokes, and it's not true for everybody. I bring up those things only as a caveat, but I really want to focus on the things I absolutely do 100% love about New York hardcore, in spite of it not being my favorite style. Uh, it's safe to say uh, from the people that have you know communicated with me about the podcast that there are a lot of folks out there that aren't as familiar with the the genre of hardcore and punk as say some of the other listeners uh so there might be a little bit of a redundancy i guess 
is the word I'm looking for, or just a total like duh moment when I bring up some of the bands I'm going to talk about. Um, I, I think it gives you a broader idea of how my tastes run and might introduce a couple of these bands to people who might not have been aware of their presence before, maybe not taking the chance to listen to them even if they've heard their names. That said, I want to address uh, an elephant in the room. Um, actually, four elephants in the room. Um, these bands are pretty much... When you talk about New York City hardcore, these bands are part and parcel. These are four names that, you know, invariably come up. If you if you say name f- five New York hardcore bands, the any one of these bands would probably be, you know, listed in the top three. Not top three best, but they might be the one of the first three to come to mind. Um, Agnostic Front, Sick of It All, Cro-Mags, Youth of Today. I'm not going to cover these bands. So if you feel like they're being left out, you know, if you're being all persnickety about it and, you know, wanting to, you know, make this into a gotcha moment, I'm just not going to talk about those bands. And there, there are a lot of bands that you might feel represent New York hardcore that I won't talk about. Um, but, you know, hey, these are, I'm, I'm going to talk about bands that I, that I like and, and of that genre. Um, I do like all four of those bands and, and I'll, I'll tag on some of my favorite songs by each of them at the end of the episode, but just off the top, I'm not going to be talking about Cro-Mags. I'm not going to be talking about Youth Today, Agnostic Front, um, or Sick of It All in any depth, uh, at least unless it relates to the bands, you know, I will be discussing. Like all the episodes I post, whether it's the five and change, a regular interview, or a special episode that I kind of pull out of my ass, I'm just riffing on this. So, look, if I get something wrong and you want to send me a nasty email, that's fucking fine. If you want to DM me about a fact I've gotten incorrect, that's fine. I'm just letting you know now that I don't give a shit. Okay? So, I'm just riffing. I just, and the reason I bring it up is I know how particular and, uh, precious people are about hardcore and punk in general and how utterly ridiculous and childish they can be about uh certain facts and figures look we all know what we're talking about it's going to be in the general ballpark just deal with it um the reason i bring that up is that i need to reiterate that this is all opinions right and the reason i bring up opinions is uh it's been expressed in other episodes and in conversations with some of you who may or may not be my close personal friends that I feel that hardcore and punk are essentially the same thing, right? I feel that hardcore is simply an adjective for punk rock. You know, it's hardcore punk. All hardcore bands, by definition, are punk bands, or at least they should sound like punk bands. But not all punk bands are hardcore, you know, it's the difference between, say, the Ramones versus Minor Threat. Minor Threat is they're a punk band. You know, they're a they're a, but they're a hardcore punk band. The Ramones are just simply a punk band. That's the shorthand for how I feel about hardcore. The reason I bring that up is New York, um, man, they really injected a ton of metal into the sound. And again, that's for better or worse. I mean, you're talking to a guy who has a Voivod and a Celtic Frost tattoo. 
Okay, so I mean, I love metal, but um, although I am willing to break away from certain orthodoxies, um, I like my hardcore to be pretty punk rock. And again, this is just my opinion, my taste. And I don't think there's another band in what you would consider New York hardcore more punk rock than Reagan Youth. Reagan Youth is a band that I feel does not get their just their just due. They're they're an amazing band and they were an amazing band. They have a very tragic tragic story that if if you want to be depressed, uh you know, read read about Reagan Youth on Wikipedia or Google it on your Google machine whatever it is, but um it's it's really really sad and kind of almost um it's depressing. It's really depressing to think about. Setting that aside, you know, all the depressing shit, um, I gotta tell you that Reagan Youth is just fucking great. Um, they were nasty. They were uh, fast when they needed to be, but not always. Um, they had wildly politically charged lyrics and imagery that um, at first blush, if you're not a uh, a critical thinker, you would question why they would have the artwork on the records that they did. But there's uh, uh, there was there was a purpose and um, a purpose and a reason behind it. Um, they really believed in using you know punk rock as a vehicle for uh, changing uh, our society. And, um, you know, combating racism. I mean, they were definitely an anarcho-punk band. Um, they were pretty committed to that, to that, uh, to that ideology. And, um, you know, it's, it's evident throughout their music. They started in 1980. Uh, the first LP came out in 84. And then there were several collections later. I, I certainly don't have the original, um... LP uh, Youth Anthems for the New Order but I do have a collection of pop classics that I bought in 94 I think New Red Archives put that out um, that's a great that's a great collection of all their stuff I tend to like the earlier stuff um, of their uh, uh, catalog better than the later stuff but it's all pretty fucking good and I, I just feel they don't get enough credit they're a fucking ama- they were an amazing band and um, anybody who's remotely into punk rock or hardcore should really at least take a listen and um you know give them a chance because they they totally deserve it they're overlooked particularly particularly when you consider how well loved many of their new york peers are
The Antidote 7 Inch Thou Shalt Not Kill, uh, released in 83, is pretty um, pretty well regarded in hardcore circles. It's a fucking amazing record, uh, front to back. Um, Something Must Be Done being the biggest hit, if there were such thing as hits in hardcore punk as far as uh, singles go. It's not a single, it's part of the 7 Inch, but um, Something Must Be Done is the song that most people would be familiar with if they if they're only marginally um if they're only marginally familiar with antidote anything after that is pretty much garbage you just need that seven inch that's all you need it's fucking fast it's nasty the vocals are fucking amazing man it's just it's just it's a great record as a courtesy for the folks who haven't heard it before you know i gotta let you know that there's a song on there called foreign job lot that um Hasn't aged well. In fact, even when it was released, it was a pretty shitty fucking song as far as lyrics go. Um, I don't think that is indicative of who they are as people these days. Um, But, you know, young people making angry music are prone to saying really stupid-ass fucking things. And that's all I'll say about it. It's not an excuse. It's fucking shitty. And that's all there is to it. Uh, Real quick, there are two versions of the band Antidote out there circulating now. Uh, I don't know how to differentiate the two as far as the way they identify themselves, but uh, there's one that has the original guitar player and main songwriter as well as the original vocalist both appear on the 7-inch out there circulating and playing shows here and there, I guess. And then there's an alternate version of it that features Drew Stone of Stone Films who does those New York Hardcore Chronicles uh, uh, videos and uh, did a film about New York Hardcore. Uh, Drew was not the original vocalist and not an original member. He appeared on later stuff. You know, it's very, um, it's all very petty and stupid, but um, maybe avoid the Drew Stone version, I guess, if you're going to, if if you absolutely have to go see Antidote, maybe avoid that one. Uh, it can't possibly be good. Uh, yeah, Antidote fucking rules, though. <laughs>
Urban Waste is another classic early New York hardcore band. Uh, their 7-inch came out on Mob Style in 83, I think, or maybe 82, I can't remember. Um, but it's it's a really vicious, fast, um, amazing uh, piece of hardcore uh, um, savagery. Yeah, I was looking for an a- adjective and I came up with savagery. I, I don't know, whatever. Anyway... <laughs> it's a really good record. Uh, as you'll notice with a lot of these bands, um, New York really as a scene, when compared to um, other cities of comparable size and even compared to cities much smaller, you know, New York was late to the game. A lot of these records were 82, 83, and some of the other you know, major players were putting out seven inches and even LPs as early as 79, 80, 81. And New York was a bit late to the game. I think I, I might be wrong, but I get the general feeling is that New York really took off once Bad Brains uh, uh, migrated from uh, DC to New York. Um, but I won't go on that tangent. Uh, Urban Waste is one of the earlier bands of that style. And you also notice that a lot of the bands that I talk about on here, not only did New York sort of get like a little bit of a later start, the bands I'm going to be talking about in particular have more of a, what a modern or younger fan of hardcore punk would call. They have more of a, a punk sound. And, uh, you'll see that it's going to be relative, fairly consistent in my picks. But anyway, uh, Urban Waste is great. Uh, they re-released that 7-inch on a 12-inch some time ago. It's pretty available. You can find it. Uh, it's well worth uh, picking up if you get the chance. Police! Brutality! Police! Brutality! I'd like to see a mountain dead cop me! Cause for Alarm is a bit of an outlier on this list. Not that they're bad. It's it's just not... I don't know. I don't know if I would necessarily claim they were top of the heap uh, along with some of these other bands. But the self-release 7-inch they did back in 83 is, is pretty fucking solid. There's some really good songs on there. Uh, the most notable song Cause for Alarm did was on a comp. I don't know the name of it off the top of my head, but it's a song called Time Will Tell. Um, it's a really, really fucking killer tune, and it was actually included on the reissue of the 7-inch that Victory did sometime in the 90s. Um, they had reformed, Keith Burkhart got the band back together, and um, they re-released that 7-inch. They did a split with Warzone, which isn't half bad, and an LP that followed that called Cheaters and the Cheated, which is okay. Uh, Tony Scaglione from Whiplash played in that version of Cause for Alarm. Um, but that brings me to another uh, 
little factoid that most of you probably know if you're familiar with Agnostic Front at all. Uh, Rob Kabula and Alex Kinnan of Cause for Alarm joined Agnostic Front and appeared on the Agnostic Front LP Cause for Alarm. Um, yeah, it's it's a pretty good 7-inch. Um, you know, I wouldn't spend a ton of money on <laughs> the original version of it. You can get the Victory one for pretty cheap on Discogs, whatever, and it's, it's pretty good. It includes their best song, and uh, there are a couple other really good tunes on there. Um, another... Uh, Another thing of note that needs to be brought up is, uh, from what I can tell, from what I've read in the past, Keith Burkhart, their vocalist, was one of the first uh, people to really start devoting a lot of time and energy into studying uh, Hare Krishna. And and I don't know if he became a devotee full-time. I don't know what all that entails, but he was one of the first people to really become a proponent of that, along with... John Joseph and and other individuals um, who came a little bit later, such as Ray Capo of Youth of, Youth of Today, but you know, Cause for Alarm is notable for a couple things, and uh, I felt I'd be a little bit remiss in not including it because there are a couple good tunes on there, and I don't know that they actually get talked about uh, as much as uh, other bands uh, that were their contemporaries. <laughs> Here's where things start getting a little bit heavier, a little more metal, for lack of a better way to describe it, at least uh, for this small part of the list. Um, Breakdown's a band that gets name-checked a lot. A lot. And they are pretty influential into what was to come in the 90s. Not as much uh, during the time they were a band, but by the 90s, really... 
that heavier, thicker, stompier sound that a lot of New York bands adopted, you know, you can look to Breakdown as one of the uh, uh, one of the bands to really sort of come up with that sound. Not to mention all the crossover uh, that was going on in New York at the time, but for like hardcore bands proper that strictly identified as hardcore, uh, Breakdown was one of the first. Uh, that '87 demo is fucking great. Um, talk to anybody who likes anything remotely hardcore and you're sure to find somebody who loves that 87 demo and with good reason. It's really fucking good. Um, there are still, you know, as stompy and heavy as it is, there are still some pretty punk rockish kind of elements, you know, to that. Um, I love the production. It, it's definitely demo style production, but it suits them and they just, you know, it's they just sound like angry kids and it's, it's fucking it's a great record um first heard it on uh the way it is compilation that revelation put out the song sick people which is their um their hit if there are such thing as hits like i mentioned before if there were such thing as hits in hardcore sick people would be it um but yeah a break, breakdown's awesome if you get your ch- if you get a chance uh pick up the 87 demo there was a reissue of it to 12 inch pretty recently that I think included some bonus tracks. Get out! 
Raw Deal, uh, who became Killing Time, was a symbiotic spawn of Breakdown. I don't know all the uh, ins and outs of their personal relationships, but at some point, uh, members of Breakdown broke off and they formed Raw Deal. And uh, that Raw Deal demo is as excellent as everybody says it is. Um, I will tell you that the, the Killing Time Bright Side LP, although it's heresy for some of the old heads, the Killing Time Brightside LP is my favorite. I prefer it over the demo. Um, probably more because it was the first thing I heard by them. But So when I, when I mention Killing Time, I'm speaking about Raw Deal and vice versa. They're interchangeable, right? They, they had to change the name from Raw Deal to Killing Time because some English band, some uh, butt rock band or cock rock band or hair metal band, whatever you want to call it, held the uh, copyright to it. So, so they had to change their name. But um, they're another band that was, you know, stompier, had a lot of mosh parts, just like Breakdown. Um, a little more metallic in their recording by the time they did Bright Side. Um, but it's, it's a fucking great record. Uh, it also, you know, had a really severe impact on a lot of hardcore bands after the fact. But it's so exceptional, even though generally that style of hardcore is not my lane. It's so exceptional that I, I can't deny it. It's a fucking great record. Uh, Killing Time, Bright Side, and the Raw Deal demo both are just fucking amazing. I'm a 
then he relies A misconception caught in the void between anger and oppression Thinking of days gone past Wondering how they could have went by so fast One step forward, one step forward, one step forward Two steps back, one step forward, one step forward, one step forward Two steps back Like I mentioned earlier, Breakdown and Raw Deal slash Killing Time probably get uh, plenty of uh, talk and lip service from anybody who's into hardcore at all. Um, not just New York hardcore, but hardcore more broadly. Um, I felt like I'd be remiss if I didn't include them because they, while they are huge, they're not quite the elephants in the room that Sick of It All, AF, Youth of Today, and Cro-Mags are. I, I felt like I had to include them. But when it comes to including bands, I would be really... Um, I'd be a real shithead if I did not include Life's Blood. Life's Blood's Defiance 7-inch, uh, according to a couple of my friends, I'm looking at you, Simon Harvey, uh, is a perfect hardcore punk 7-inch. And it's hard to argue. It's a really fucking great record. Life's Blood is... Um, it came out in 88, but sound-wise it harkened back to, you know five, six years earlier. It sounded like one of the earlier New York hardcore bands because by 88, metal had really infiltrated uh, the New York hardcore scene in a big way. Uh, Concurrently, uh, the youth crew sound and that style and aesthetic had taken foothold in New York as well. So Life's Blood kind of stuck out a little bit. Um, There were two presses on combined effort, I guess. Um... And later on, Vermiform uh, put a copy out of it, and and that's the one I have. I don't have a combined effort version of it. But uh, notable that Adam Nathanson of uh, Life's Blood went on to be in Born Against. Um, But yeah, Life's Blood, it's fucking sick. If you can, get your hands on it. It's fucking great. Go! 
Since I brought it up earlier, let's talk about Born Against. Adam Nathanson formed Born Against after Life's Blood with uh, Sam McFeeders and uh, I can't remember all the original members. Um, but that first 7-inch came out in 1990 on Vermiform, I think, put that one out. I'm pretty certain Vermiform did the first version of that. Anyway, Born Against was, you know, in a lot of ways a reaction to what was going on in New York at the time. Um, like I mentioned earlier, there was a lot of metal and uh, the CBGB scene from all accounts had become pretty violent and pretty um, regressive politically and kind of antithetical to what a lot of people thought hardcore punk should be about. And that's what I mean by the, for better or worse, part of New York hardcore. Um, I tend to fall in the camp that uh, regressive, reactionary, conservative politics aren't a part of hardcore and punk at least the way I define it, you know. And the violence that uh, was part and parcel of the scene was also something I became pretty uh, tired of in the, you know, American hardcore punk scene broadly, not just New York because I'm not a New Yorker. So I sort of identify with Born, Born Against on that on that front. And their sound, like Life's Blood, harkened back to uh, some of the earlier New York bands. They were part of, like, a scene that was... Uh, developing at ABC No Rio, which was collectively run, I believe. Uh, it was on Rivington Street um, in New York and was like an alternative to what was going on at CBGB's at the time. Um, politically, they were very... Um, they were fired up and really hard left-leaning politics, which, you know, um, I, I, I was on board for and a lot of um, ideas that I felt represented um, how I felt about the world at large and hardcore and punk in general. Uh, if I was going to take issue with them, there was a lot of um, ivory tower coastal elitism in um, the attitudes of some of the members You know that I evidenced firsthand when they played in Ohio. So while I can be critical of you know, New York hardcore at large during that era, you know, bands that I agreed with are certainly not, um, they're, they're subject to criticisms of their own. But that being said, I'm ranting now, uh, that first Born Against 7 Inch is fucking awesome. It's really good. It's furious and just, it's actually heavy in some spots. Not in the same way Breakdown is, but there's like some really just low gut punches with the guitar tone it's just grimy and dirty sounding and uh pretty urgent it's it's a really really fucking great record there are other stuff uh as it goes on it's a crap shoot um you know i i like some of it but i i always i always go back to the first seven inch
Another band that came up in the ABC No Rio scene, uh, Citizens Arrest. Um, I can't really speak much about their history or, um, you know, uh, the stuff surrounding the band outside of the fact that they were part of the ABC No Rio scene. Um, but I can tell you that A Light in the Darkness, Seven Inch, and the Colossus LP are fucking great, great, great hardcore records. Um... They just like Born Against Nicewood, they sort of harken back to earlier uh hardcore, but they look forward to you know probably what was to come in the late 90s, early 2000s. Like they're pretty pretty well loved amongst the uh the thrashcore contingent and the fast hardcore uh resurgence that happened in the late 90s, early 2000s. They were a little bit ahead of their time. Um they're a really fucking great band and and you know some people i have a couple friends that really like a light and a darkness best but colossus is just an amazing lp uh you know get those if you can um it's it's just good shit man
I'm not entirely sure of uh, the accuracy of this statement, but I get the feeling that the next band, Absolution, sort of straddled the two worlds of what was going on in the late 80s at CBGB's and ABC No Rio. Uh, they were an incredible band. I absolutely love, absolutely love Absolution. Wow, that was clumsy and stupid. But I do. I love Absolution quite a bit. Uh, they are, well, Gavin Van Vlack, their guitar player, uh, is more well known for uh, Burn, which followed. Um, but Absolution really is a genuine precursor to that. Uh, Gavin is an interesting individual in that he's played a lot of bands. Uh, New York Hoods, Absolution, Burn, Die 116, uh, canonized his uh ostensibly his solo project and uh is is a pretty well-renowned uh you know martial arts trainer in in new york uh I, we did i did an interview with him uh on an earlier episode please go back and check that out additionally Gingy brown uh is a great vocalist a great vocalist and, and from all accounts an amazing front man i did not have the opportunity to catch absolution i wish i had but uh they're they're pretty astounding, and uh, I've included uh, two of my favorite songs by them on here. Um, their self-titled 7-inch um, had, I guess, suffered from some recording issues, at least according to the band. I don't hear them. I love them. Uh, they re-recorded them, and re-recorded that particular record, and uh, it's, it's an improvement, but not the one I'm used to hearing, so I often refer back to uh, the first one but they're they're a fucking amazing band and i wish they uh, i wish they were talked about more
what can I say about nausea that has been said at least a dozen times in past episodes of this podcast. I absolutely fucking love this band. Uh, they distill everything that I love about Motorhead, Discharge, Metal, Hardcore, Punk, Touch of Slayer, and uh, really just make it their own thing. They have a couple uh, really great 7 Inches, uh, Cyber God, Lie Cycle. Uh, the Extinction LP is really good. They appear on a bunch of comps, most notably Murderers Among Us. Uh, which also features Absolution, ironically enough. And, uh, you know, The Way It Is comp, which is where I first heard them. At the time, the vocal setup was Neil uh, of Tribal War Records and Amy. And later on, Neil uh, was not in the band any longer, and they got Al. So it was Al and Amy. Uh, but Amy, uh, for certain, uh, was the superior vocalist of the three. Uh, not to mention that the band themselves were great players. You had Vic Venom on guitar, uh, John John Jesse on bass, uh, Roy Mayorga on drums later on. Uh, I know they had a couple other drummers in the past. I, their names escape me, but in any case, they, they're a fucking great band. And uh, I don't know how really available all their stuff is, um, but you can find it. It's probably at reasonable prices on Discogs, but I really encourage you to check this band out. Um, they're great. They've been a favorite of mine for a really, really long time.
last and certainly not least, uh, Sheer Terror. Uh, at one point in the early 90s, Sheer Terror pretty much ruled uh, my uh, stereo. Uh, they are a singular band, uh, not just because of Paul Bearer's vocals, which are pretty much the thing that's most prominent when people discuss the band. Uh, his ability to actually croon, as well as to have some pretty uh, brutal-sounding vocals, is um, very impressive, and, and it's un I understand completely why that's the thing people really gravitate to uh, in conversations about the band. Uh, but really, Sheer Terror encapsulates, much like Nausea, encapsulates a lot of things I love about hardcore and punk, as well as just enough metal. I mean, look, it's pretty evident when you listen to their LP, Just Can't Hate Enough, that somebody was listening to Celtic Frost, right? I mean, that's undeniable. That's probably been, uh, you know, that, that ground has been dug up several times and discussed and turned over. Uh, I, you can also maybe look to Discharge as well. I mean, Discharge actually has a pretty profound impact on early Sheer Terror's, uh, you know, sonic output as far as guitar, bass, and drums go. The other notable thing are his lyrics. Sure Terror has been uh, pretty, I think, misunderstood from day one. Uh, you know, there is a certain element of uh, tough guy posturing that people do as they relate to Sheer Terror, and I've never felt it was ever that. I mean, anybody who knows me it, that knows my love for this band can attest to the fact that from day one I've always felt that these were, you know, songs from an individual that was grappling with some serious, serious shit but in a very, um, I don't know, uh, poetic yet blue-collar sort of way. You know, blue-collar shorthand for being, you know, a person who, you know, just a regular average guy, um, but still with a, you know, spoke to these things with a, with a level of elegance that a lot of uh, other vocalists and lyricists just aren't capable of. Um, they've got a clutch of really good records. I... I ride for Just Can't Hate Enough, certainly. Uh, I do actually like the Ugly and Proud record, mostly as an artifact of what could have been. Uh, you know, that record, uh, famously, they got screwed in a record deal and uh, didn't come out till later on. Um, the subsequent record, Thanks for Nothing, is uh, pretty damn good. The production's cleaned up, doesn't have the bite that Just Can't Hate Enough uh, does, but has like a lot of good songs on there. And I do like the old New Bard and Blue EP. Um, there's some really, there's a couple really good songs on there. Uh, I fall off at uh, the MCA release, uh, which the name escapes me right now because I, <laughs> I, I've listened to it so infrequently. But uh, here are my two favorite Sheer Terror cuts. Um, also, their their songs. I first heard them on the uh, New York New York Hardcore where the Wild Things Are cop uh, Cup of Joe. And not giving up were on there, and those were pretty uh, sick, uh, fucking songs. Like really, really good. Um, but yeah, I, they they might be considered an elephant in the room type band, but I do think that um, they're not spoken of in the same breath as the four I mentioned previously. But they, they figure big into the picture, just not as big as the others.
As promised, uh, I hear a couple songs from the four elephants in the room. I'm not going to discuss them too much. I'll just, uh, you know, list them off in uh, succession. You've got Cro-Mags, Agnostic Front, Youth of Today, and Sick of It All.
Okay, that's it. That's all I've got for you. I want to thank you for uh, listening and being patient with me while I edit these uh, next few episodes. Not just uh, the folks who listen, but also my guests. I'm furiously working on uh, getting these, these things edited. Uh, anybody who knows me uh, knows that my personal life right now is pretty chaotic. And I don't mean that in a, you know, uh, my family's in crisis kind of way. But there's a lot going on, you know. So uh, I appreciate you guys listening as always. And uh, we're pushing towards uh, 50 episodes. This is number 40 if I have the number right at the time that I'm recording this, I'm not going to look it up. But, uh, yeah, uh, thanks for listening. And, oh, real quick, if you want to communicate with me on social media, you can do so on Facebook at Larry Bleach. Hold on, hold on, hold on. On Facebook at Bleachmouth Postscript. Instagram, Larry underscore Bleachmouth. Email, bleachmouthps at gmail.com. You can listen to all the past episodes on Apple Podcasts as well as at the website bleachmouth.mkultrazine.com. Uh, you won't find it on Spotify because I ain't fucking with it, and I don't, I don't deal with Twitter. I don't even look at it. Anyway, thanks again. Bye.